2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Associate Professor Salvador Santino Efrejume Jr., and he's going to be talking about the book he co-edited with Hiring, Hapritino. Their book is Human Rights at Risk, Global Governance, American Power, and the Future of Dignity. Santino, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Jane, for this opportunity, and good morning to you.
2: Good morning. It's great to have you back, because I know this is the second interview we've done, so it's excellent. I love to have repeat authors, and this book was fabulous. I, I must say, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so this book was Human Rights at Risk, Global Governance, American Power and the Future of Dignity, and it was published by Rutgers University Press in 2022. So now my first question is, How did you come to write Human Rights at Risk, Global Governance, American Power, and the Future of Dignity?
1: Yeah, so I think it started with um, when I moved to Leiden in the Netherlands, um, I was looking for human rights scholars. Um, It's just for the sake of intellectual curiosity with no specific um, goal of having, let's say, a collaborative project. And within our faculty, so I'm a social scientist by training, political scientist, and then I moved to... The humanities um, in an international relations program, and I met Irene Hadiprayitno um, from the Area Studies Institute, um, and she works from the perspective of law and society. And we found out that a lot of the scholars, at least within the Dutch community studying human rights, come from the legal scholarship, and. As a social scientist, um, I'm very familiar that human rights is a very vast field with many disciplines contributing to our very, you know, very contested understanding of human rights. So um, I felt that there should be a space to to actually have an output that would congregate different scholars from various backgrounds um, working on human rights. And I thought that... Um, there are various echo chambers, both in rea- I mean, in 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 offline, but also online, on how we understand human rights. Are they at risk? Is it in crisis? And it felt that a lot of these echo chambers are ideologically based, or disciplinary, or discipline based, or where you're from. For example, I mean, Dutch colors have their own. Um, specific topics about human rights that they'd love to to work on and that's completely normal right but but i felt that um there seems to be a forum in which we can we can bring together all of these um scholars from various backgrounds and this is where um the book project came into being
2: and that's actually one thing i loved about this book that it was really diverse and as you say you know often there is this sort of echo chamber uh, with regard to human rights. And, you know, scholars do tend to focus on things that are similar and in the Dutch context you've talked about, you know, coming from, at it from a legal perspective. But what I really enjoyed was, you know, the diverse range of scholars. You had a real mix of people from the global north and the global south. Perhaps you can comment a little bit on this, on this diversity of the authors.
1: Yeah, so, <clears throat> I mean, um, for me, so the, the, we can talk about how we came up with the actual roster of the of the scholars who eventually contributed. But I felt that I can imagine that some of the scholars in the volume might not be in the same, you know, conference rooms or in the same workshops. Had it been the case that this volume was not, um, did not come into being, so I felt that. Um, the volume provided I would like to think that the volume provided the opportunity for social scientists and legal scholars to come into one output. and, um, I just felt that this is a very important output because when I browse through the major human rights public publications, at least the anthologies and the monographs, scholar, legal scholars are talking amongst themselves, quantitative social scientists working on human rights talk amongst themselves, critical human rights scholars talk amongst themselves, and so on. And I felt that um, there should be a space for this. And... Um, with an overarching question. So I think that Irene and I um, decided to actually, you know, our main contribution is really to ask a very important and universally appealing question. Are human rights at risk? And I'm sure that we'll get a lot of exciting answers from different perspectives. And I think this is what the book, um, you know, hopes to accomplish.
2: And so then... This overarching question, um, why do you describe human rights as being at risk?
1: Yeah, so it felt like I think the initial decision about asking the question whether human rights are at risk come from a very, you know, it's a phenomenological observation, right? Um, if Irene and I come from, well, we Irene and I are scholars within our Late 30s and 40s, and we felt that you know if you were if you're already aware in the 1990s, right? There's so much optimism after the post Cold War, and then suddenly during the War on Terror, the Global War on Terror, there's a lot of backlash and there's a lot of regression in terms of human rights. Or sometimes human rights and democratic governance were weaponized to actually justify violence. And most recently, you have um, the Trump presidency. And, of course, a regression in terms of democracy all over the world. I mean, the large majority of people all over the world live in sort of authoritarian or, I would say, struggling democ- dem- democracies. I think that simple observe that's, you know, bring together all of these phenomenological observations and empirical patterns, right? I've, we felt that it's worth asking the question, are human rights at risk? Perhaps that human rights that we are thinking about come from this idea of post-Cold War 1990s human rights idea. But we wanted to have this idea of human rights much more broadly construed so that we will be able to give space for scholars, human rights scholars from different perspectives to contribute to the debate.
2: And so then before we get into these diverse perspectives and the sort of substance in each of the chapters... Can you just provide some sort of context in terms of how human rights are defined in your book?
1: Yeah, so we define human rights um, in terms of, first, there's an empirical um, perspective of human rights, and there's also the normative um, perspective of, of human rights. Um, and I think in the introduction, there's certain form of recognition about these two claims, but we don't want to actually impose... How different authors would focus, whether they would like to focus on empirical and normative claims. So the empirical claim is that human rights are norms, right? They are. There's a collective expectation for the prop. It's so human rights are norms to the extent that they they are a bundle of collective expectations regarding the proper behavior of actors with a given identity. So in a way, they are. They are actually patterns of behavior that we expect from people on how to behave, right. That's one empirical aspect of, of human rights. The number another aspect of the empirical dimension of human rights is that they are indeed flexible discourses uh, or meta discourses um, used by different political actors um, for their own purposes right um it's similar to those universally appealing discourses such as democracy economic development peace i mean who doesn't like peace right i mean or who doesn't like economic growth so our my idea and i think this is also the idea of my of my co-editor is that human rights are these flexible discourses that that can be weaponized and i'm using weaponized here as an empirical Empirical term rather than a normatively laden term, right? I mean, both progressive and also far right movements can weaponize it, or perhaps the more neutral term would be instrumentalized. Um, that can be invoked by political actors to achieve a certain political outcome. And that's an empirical claim, right? I mean, we can see this. I mean, if a student wants to submit a paper 10 minutes, uh, 10 days late, a student can you justify, I have the right to submit and do this, blah, 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 or right to due process. So these are uh, flexible discourses. I think what is a bit more implicit in the volume, though, is that human rights are also normative claims. Um, The idea that every human individual, so the normative claim is that every human individual has dignity, has um, an innate moral worth just by the virtue of, being human, and therefore specific rights um, are derived, can be derived from this uh, moral worth, and those rights are are ways to actually actualize the holistic dignity of a human individual. So I, I would I would insist perhaps that dignity is this moral foundation in which rights can be concrete ways on how to how to achieve or how to. Make sense of your of one's dignity. So from right, from economic rights to political rights and civil rights, etc.
2: And now, so I want to talk. Uh, the book is divided into three parts. Um, so the first part was the introduction. The second part, I want to move on to that now. Um, it's titled "The Effectiveness of International Human Rights Institutions." Mm-hmm. And the first chapter in that section is about transparency, transparency rather accountability and legitimacy within the UN. Universal Periodic Review. And it's by Storian, uh, excuse my pronunciation, Excelsen Turner. Please do correct me if I'm wrong. uh,
1: Yes, Storian Eccleston uh, Turner. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, do you want to tell me more about this? Um, Can you comment on the effectiveness of these mechanisms, perhaps?
1: Yeah, so so the authors in, in that chapter examined the consequences of the various ways in which institutions interact with their member states. And so legal scholars, Alice and Mark Eccleston-Turner, investigate the manner in which transparency is approached by one of the key human rights agencies in the UN system. And that is the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights within and, and, and their exercise of the UN Human Rights Council's uh, Universal Periodic Review, so the UPR. For them, so there's always. I mean, for an ordinary person, right? Um, For an average, reasonable person, transparency transparency seems to be a very desirable value when we conduct um, policies, for example, or when we conduct our when we exercise one's authority within public office. So, in this chapter, they show that the lack of transparency in the formulation of the UPRs, or the Universal Periodic Review, would be the the key focus of the chapter. And they demonstrate this lack of transparency through the review of the United States UPRs with the focus on the abolition of death penalty. And the second case study um, refers to the function of the UPR in highlighting the problem of access to HIV medication particularly in um, those countries that have high, high that have high HIV um, infections.
2: Okay. Um, and so the next chapter then, what was really interesting, and this was sort of one of the strengths of the book, because you've talked about, you know, bringing these really diverse perspectives together from um, different scholars, um, often voices that we don't hear together. So. The next chapter is After Obama, the African group at the UN Human Rights Council. Um, What was interesting to me about this chapter, is by Edward Jordan, is that, you know, often we've heard a lot about human rights discourses in, um, for example, the US especially and problems with democracy after Obama, but we don't hear about it from, you know, the perspective of, say, uh, of outside the U.S. or especially outside Western liberal democracies. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about the African group at the UN Human Rights Council during the post-Obama era.
1: Yeah, so I, I think uh, this chapter really challenges um, our conventional understanding that when, that there is a dramatic decline in, in, in human rights promotion just because there seems to be less support in the global north. And what the what the chapter shows is that, well, the African group, so the the so the congregation of member states from the African continent shows that their voting patterns um, suggest otherwise. That in fact, um, it's it's much more of a mixed record, at least. But there seems to be in some in some cases or in some key um, voting issues. And within the Human Rights Council, African member states, in fact, demonstrated support for human rights. So I think that is, for me, that is a very important finding. Because especially if you browse through the major journals within human rights, you always have this idea of a gloomy picture. Global South are just passive actors, and what Edward, what um, Edward Jordan did was to demonstrate that you know African member states have political agency and they do exercise, um, they do promote their own views of human rights within these global governance institutions. These are, so these global governance institutions are corridors of power, and it's not only about global north states. And I think that's what the chapter really does in a very systematic um, and empirically um, sophisticated manner.
2: Yeah, it was really interesting and I I found it really eye-opening and just, to approach it from a different perspective, so that was that was fascinating. Um, moving on to the next part, part three: the thematic blind spots in international human rights. I mean, just sort of taking it holistically first. How do you identify thematic blind spots in human rights in international human rights? I should say.
1: Yeah, so I think um, thematic blind, sp- blind spots here would. We have a very general understanding here. So I think these are the topics that are usually, that at least in our view, um, do not necessarily appear in the mainstream scholarly journals in human rights. So for example, um, I I mean, we can talk about that later, but Irene Hadiparit and Dina Prapto Raharja's chapter um, shows a different perspective about the ASEAN that you don't often hear here in Europe. So I, I think that's um, so. When we say thematic blind spots, these are the unacknowledged um, but very important issues in global human rights, and unfortunately, they're not being they're, they remain understudied by scholars of human rights across various fields. So I think it's a very general understanding of what we meant by thematic blind spots.
2: But maybe then you can tell me a bit more about this next chapter on consensus and human rights politics, the case of Asian Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, because it was a really interesting argument put forward by the authors um, for an Asian Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. Do you want to tell me about their proposal a bit more?
1: Yeah, so I think... Um... Oh. This is a very interesting chapter to the extent that it challenges one single... Well, all the chapters challenge different specific questions or specific dominant understandings about human rights. But here, they challenge a legal positivist approach of how the ICHR or the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, so I th- the, the main human rights body within the ASEAN or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. There's always this, especially if you come here, if you come from Europe, right, there's always this understanding that the European Union is the embodiment of a supranational model of governance, right? It is a human rights, a key human rights promoter, Some of it is true, but a lot of the scholars who focus on the EU, they overstate the the power of the EU when it comes to human rights promotion, setting aside the systemic hypocrisy within the EU. But the point being here is that um, they use the EU as the primary standard for evaluating other supranational bodies, and in this case, ASEAN. That's Eurocentric, in my view, and also analytically problematic. In the case of of, of this chapter, they show that the Aicher, um so this body, is not a typical human rights mechanism. It was, from the very start, intended for a particular purpose, to serve as a forum not only for intergovernmental members, so member states, but also civil society members within the ASEAN member states. And that's unique, and that's extremely powerful. I mean, some other human rights, intergovernmental human rights forum might not give space to civil society members. So from the very start, the ICHR achieves its purpose if you use internally its own institutional objective, Right. And if, you know, other scholars who are not familiar with, I, with ICHER might have a different set of standards, I think the chapter provides um, a counter argument. It was not intended to, you know, become, you know, to, be, to actually punish violators or to go after violators or to conduct reports how bad X, Y and Z countries are. It was not like that, but really much more of a deliberative forum.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. And actually, you know, I've just personally relocated from being in Asia for the last 11 years, and I'm originally from Australia. And actually, it struck me how Eurocentric, I'm in the UK now, analysis can be, not having come from that background before. So, I mean, at least anecdotally, I can certainly affirm that sort of argument in that chapter. And it's interesting to think about actually shifting this analysis away from, you know, a sort of... EU, Global North set of analysis um, to look at sort of perhaps, I I don't know if you'd say more appropriate, but um, certainly more sort of localised forms of analysis. Absolutely. Um, So it's fascinating. And I think that relates to the next chapter as well called Skewed Vision, Human Rights in War Through the Eyes of Peace. Um, And that was by Carlock Yip. Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, the author puts forward an argument that the world, including human rights, and the world that the human rights shape, come from a certain standpoint. This is described as the socio-political convenience of forging others' rights. So can you tell me about more about this skewed vision in the context of human rights? Yes, I think
1: the skewed vision is about um, the idea that when we see various types of human rights crisis elsewhere. And I think I'm I'm speaking it about the broader implication of the chapter's theoretical argument. Because I think reading this chapter is fascinating. It's also theoretically engaging. I felt that um, we always view human rights violations from a certain perspective. And this is not about... um, Stripping the severity, or basically discounting the severity of human rights violations, but it's about the idea that um, here in the global north, for example, there's a well. There seems to be a well-meaning effort to uphold wartime human rights, and for the author, it's an abstract idea bound up with, you know, dominant political ideas that were coming from Europe that are perhaps not necessarily attuned to the intricacies and to the nuances and the challenges of the wartime conditions in those specific localities. So I I think um, that's very important because it has implications on how we understand justice. It has implications on how we understand violations. It has implications on how we actually attribute the causes of specific armed conflicts, right? Um, and I think it uses the standpoint theory and basically the idea that we should really recognize um, different standpoints and understand, or different um, positionalities, and understand, and, and basically recognizing the complexity of war and armed conflict rather than just a simplistic view, you know, if you are a judge sitting in your comfortable chair in the corridors of power in London, it's a completely different reality out there. And I think that's something that we should recognize.
2: Yeah, and it was really fascinating, that chapter, as you say, um, both substantively and also theoretically, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, So the next chapter is a little bit different. um, But it does talk about, you know, sort of some human rights violations that come out of often war times. So this chapter is, who are the victims of crimes against cultural heritage? Um, And the author is Umar Bar. My question is, who are the victims against cultural heritage?
1: Yes, I think the chapter The chapter is really um, empirically grounded, but theoretically engaging chapter. My own reading of the chapter as the editor, and I've read it several times, and now also before the interview, is that it's making an empirical claim um, rather than a normative claim. So the empirical claim is how is the concept of victimhood constructed using the case study um, Here. Right. So there were two categories of victims according to Umar Ba. So that appeared in the international criminal justice system related to crimes against cultural heritage. So so you have the communities whose cultural heritage was targeted, but also you have the international community um, that is, you know, unilaterally represented apparently by the UNESCO or the UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization World Heritage List. So it talks about the judgment of the ICC based in The Hague. And they wanted to construct who exactly are the victims here. And there are various um, ways in which they actually... um, referred to the victims. So you have the resident. So this is regarding the Almadi case, the residents of Timbuktu, the Malian state, and finally the international community represented by UNESCO. So for me the, the interesting part is really the discursive construction. Who is doing the construction? Where is it being done? Why is it being done according to the per according to the institutions that doing that does the construction of of victimhood rather than are they really Supposed to do that, or is it a more less of a question of are they really the victims? I think it's really an empirically fascinating um, chapter in my, in my view that I don't often read in in men or hear in amongst many human rights or even legal
0: um, scholars. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, I found it really fascinating and it's sort of for similar reasons. I think it really stood out to me as something really quite different. The empirical claim Um, And, I mean, there is some overlap in that sort of empirical claim and the challenges um, posed to sort of legal constructions of crime, in particular in the next chapter, um, and that's challenging the legal boundaries of genocide, the war on drugs in the Philippines. And in that chapter, Dalia Simengran makes a case for changing the legal boundaries of genocide, and she uses... um, she contextualizes this argument in the war on drugs in the Philippines. Perhaps you can just comment briefly on on this chapter.
1: Yeah, so uh, Dalia Simangan uh, provided a very fascinating and innovative analysis about the war on drugs in, in the Philippines. Because when we think about genocide, it always refers to, and of course, this is something that is stipulated in in the in the in the, in the relevant convention about genocide, right? It's usually about And I quote, let's say, for example, Article 2 in the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. That sounds like a mouthful, but it basically says that, you know, it always refers to national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, right? And if you look at the targets of the war on drugs under Duterte in the Philippines, most of the targets are, in fact, extremely poor people, financially impoverished people, who were caught... um, you know, well, caught, killed, or sometimes tortured, right? All extrajudicially. So, death penalty is is illegal in the Philippines. So, um, the question there is that you have this large number of people who were killed by the war, because of the Duterte's war on drugs. But how should we label it, right? And most scholars, social scientists, and legal scholars. Would hesitate to view it as an act of genocide. And Dalia Simangan um, argues that it is, in fact, genocide using the various stages of genocide framework that she offers, right? So, starting from classification, dehumanization, up to the extermination, or perhaps, or you know, the the systematic killing of, of these people and denial. So for me, when, when I look back at this chapter, from this chapter, when I reflect upon this, like who were really the victims of the third war on drugs? A lot of them are extremely poor people in the slums of Metro Manila or in some provinces. But these poor people are not mentioned. I mean category of being poor is not mentioned in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. And that, I think, is a, both an empirical problem and also a normative problem for, for, for the conception of genocide.
2: Yeah, and you can see how that work um, and those empirical and normative claims that the author is making could actually be transferred into different situations of violence in different contexts. Um, So I found it to be a really useful and um, interesting chapter. I want to move to the next part of the book, which is part four, um, and that's titled The United States and Human Rights Challenges. And your chapter is up next. So the chapter you've written is called Human Rights at Risk in the Era of Trump and American Decline. And here you describe human rights as being at risk in the era of Trump and America being in decline. Can you expand upon this somewhat?
1: Yes, I think this chapter is a way for me to understand two different debates, but also mixing them together in one piece. So there's the debate about American decline. Is America in decline? And if so, how? And this is a very important debate for sociologists, for political scientists, for international relations scholars. And then there's also the debate about um, the impact of of U.S. power in human rights promotion, which is also a much bigger debate that is um, participated by a lot of other social scientists and legal scholars. So my core argument in here is that first, America is indeed in decline, um, not only because of these conventional standards of military power and relative declining compared to other rising powers, notably China, but also because of its decreasing economic vitality. And the reason for that, it's not because of a simple technocratic mismanagement of of the economy, but in fact, it's because of the ideology of American power. The ideology or the moral foundation of American power is neoliberalism, shrinking welfare state in service of extremely rich people. And this decline um, has a lot of impact. It's not only about the economy, but also has impacts on democracy and if you see if 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 you look at the past few years right and ending with Trump right we see that american power is in fact in a corrosive state um its economic growth is low compared to other emerging power uh, let's say for example china but also the appeal of of democratic governance is 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 at risk right it's becoming less appealing for not only for people outside the United States, but in fact, within the United States. So the problem here is from within and the hypocrisies within um, U.S. foreign policy that actually makes the U.S. a less appealing power. And it has implications on the content of what kind of human rights that the U.S. wants to promote.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so much like I want to unpick from this. Um, I guess my first question is, you know, you describe it in the book and I'm quoting human rights and the crisis of neoliberal authoritarianism and in that context you write that even some American allies in the global south are now caught up by this pandemic of authoritarianism. With neoliberalism at its core, American power has consistently failed to uphold the moral principles of material equality and global justice. Can you tell me a bit more about this?
1: Yeah, so I think the one of my key underlying arguments here is that um, a lot of the constitutional democracies worldwide, including the United States and many here in Europe or even in in Asia, Africa, and South America, a lot of these constitutional democracies are experiencing um, a really bad political economy, and that is primarily because of a neoliberal run. Um, political economy that privileges the obscenely rich people plus a shrinking welfare state. And, you know, the gap between the poor and the rich is extremely wide to the point that policies by elected governments are actually benefiting systematically, not by happenstance, but systematically those who have the ability to influence um, you know, elected officials. Um, and I think that's the main problem of 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 the system, of, of neoliber- neoliberalism in general. And um, I think this, you know, if I call it like that, right, this pandemic of authoritarianism is really a problem of the ideology about political economy.
2: And so then... In this period, is there a way to come back, do you think, from this sort of decline in the damage that was done during the Trump era to human rights?
1: I think it's very difficult, but I, th- I think there's always hope and I think that's where we should, um, we should start. Um, and this is what I also say in other pieces beyond this book, is the idea that human rights scholars, activists, pro-democracy supporters supporters should always go beyond human rights we should always look into very difficult but important questions about economic justice or socio-economic justice perhaps it's very uncomfortable to say th- to hear this from others um for other people but i think it's really time to talk about redistribution of wealth and um not only at the national level but also globally i mean just imagine jane during this pandemic there was a dramatic increase there was a dramatic increase of there was a dramatic increase of of billionaires all over the world i think there was an increase from 2100 billionaires around 2019 to around 2600 in 2021 this was based on the oxfam report and at the same time, hundreds of millions of people in the informal economy lost their income because of, of the pandemic or the pandemic conditions. That is stunning, right? So it's not longer about Human rights, it's just a minute piece, but it's about wealth distribution. It's about how resources are being distributed. And if we continue like this, right, it's not only the question of American power. If we continue not tackling about wealth and how it's being distributed, we will continue to have policies done by elected officials that are always pro-rich people.
2: Yeah, I mean, as you say, the mind just boggles when you think of it like that, this massive increase in wealth and all well, its billionaires. And then so many people suffered so much during the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting argument. I guess then turning to the, the final part, part five, this is a good time to talk about that because it's titled Rethinking the Future of Human Rights. And I want to skip ahead to um, Emily Hafner Burton's chapter. It's called Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow, Thoughts on Global Human Rights in the 21st Century. And so she writes about the tension between the universality and the indivisibility of human rights on the one hand with the ongoing significance of state sovereignty on the other. I guess my question is, how can we think of human rights for the future? Do we need to rethink this structure of the international regime or perhaps its substance?
1: Yes, I think it's about... um, I think it's about... So the chapter from Emily Hafner Burton... I really like it to the extent that it's really pragmatic and it recognizes the important empirical challenges about human rights. It's it's really about power contestations, political contestations. And she provides some of the possible limitations of what we can do, but also some avenues for, for hope. And she clearly lays out what are the different challenges from the rise of autocrats to populism and decline of the West. I think the structure of the international regime, I mean, this is my own reflection of the chapter, the the final substantive chapter from from Emily Hefner Burton, is the idea that maybe it's really about the international regime plus the substance of what kind of human rights are we talking about. Uh, It might be you know, in, in the short term, it's good to protest different kinds of against different kinds of human rights violations. But the underlying question is why do these violations keep on persisting? Right? So for example, you know, um, fast fashion and slave labor, right? We can just protest about this, but it goes back to the idea that why is it that a lot of these very bad labor conditions persist in some places? and why not here in Europe. It's because of the unfair rules of global economic governance that are skewed towards those who are in the global north. Those are uncomfortable questions that many scholars are not willing to ask. And I think for me that's a question of the structure of the international regime, but also a question of substance, right? So it's not about civil and political rights. It's not only about economic rights, but it's about questions of global economic justice. And I think when I reflect about this chapter, but also the chapter from Jeffrey Davis, but also Hans-Martin Ten Nappel, is the idea that it's not only about, there's this tendency that rights, the notion of rights is really about the individual, Right individual X claiming that he or she or they have a right to something there are emancipatory aspects to that but there are also limitations and I think when we talk about justice there is a structural implication about it. What is wrong in the way that we conduct our our you know our public affairs within, within the political community. And I think that's very important. And I think it's about the substance of human rights, but also how we conduct um, global politics.
2: Yeah, and it's a sort of fascinating end to the book then. In the very final chapter, your co-editor, she writes, policy solutions must be made based on human rights orientated considerations, which need to reflect the emancipatory interests of all stakeholders. Is, is there any key takeaway that you just want to finish on here?
1: Yeah, so I think the, the key takeaway here um, would be human rights. Well, there are several. So I think I'd just like to highlight three. Um, the first is that human rights mean different things to different people, right? So, for example, even rich people use human rights to justify their obscene wealth. They, they say that, well, the state's primary goal is to sanctify private property rights endpoint right and then of course others will say a different kind of right but i think that we should always think about human rights as one tool for articulating injustices right and i think that human rights per se are discourses that are so flexible that even the extremely rich people can weaponize it for their own purposes. But we should always be cautious that human rights was initially a language for emancipation of those who are aggrieved, those who are oppressed, those who are subjugated. And I think that's what human rights should be about. And um, secondly, I think after reading this book uh, several times, right, as both as the co-editor, but also now for this interview, I think it's really... One of the big implications here is that maybe human rights are really not enough. And I think I'm echoing here the argument of Samuel Moyn that maybe human rights are not enough. Maybe it's a question of what kind of political utopia we want to achieve. Um, What kind of political community do we want to sustain? Um, And finally, I think also I'd like to, I I spent a lot of efforts on, on the book. And I enjoyed a lot working with, with the authors. I think one key takeaway for scholars specifically would be, um, I think there should always be for a, a space for us to accommodate various perspectives. So I think in, methodologically, um, I'd like to think of the book as an exercise of studying rights from a multidisciplinary perspective. Um, just imagine, for example, the you know, not only the disciplines, but also the ideal ideology. And you can read this from the book, different chapters. I can imagine that not all the chapter authors would agree with each other, at least ide- ideologically. And I think that, um, I hope that there will be a lot more initiatives within the academy to accommodate these kinds of multidisciplinary debates, not for the sake of multidisciplinarity, but for the sake of learning from each other and enriching the debate further.
2: Yeah, I mean, I certainly learned a lot from that. Um, It was honestly, it was such a wonderful, enriching and challenging book. So thank you so much. Um, It's been a great chat today. Um, I just want to thank you again, um, Assistant Professor, Salvador, sorry, Associate Professor, Salvador Santino Reglume Jr. um, for coming again on the show today. Um, We've been talking about your book, which is co-edited with Irene Haprigino. Um, And that was Human Rights at Risk, Global Governance, American Power and the Future of Dignity.
1: Thank you so much, Jane.
2: (laughs) Thank you.